welcome to our Easter Sunday service, our celebration as we remember the most significant event and the most important day in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's a story I love to tell at Easter about a man called George who came home from work one day and he was horrified as he looked out in his back garden and saw his dog running about with his neighbor's pet rabbit Flossie in his mouth. He ran out, tried to retrieve the rabbit from the dog's mouth and looked at it. It was mangled, it was covered in blood and dirt and it was very, very much dead. And George has a panic at this stage. He thinks his neighbor's going to kill him. He's He's, he's worried that his neighbours are never going to forgive him and he doesn't know what to do. And then he has, a, he has that moment where a light goes on and he takes the rabbit into the house, and brings it into the bathroom, pops it in the shower, showers it down, gets the head and shoulders and the, and the links out and, and, and shampoos it and shower gels it and manages to wash all the blood and all the dirt off it and then he blow dries it and uh, gets it all nice and, and f- fluffy again and, and when the neighbour's out he climbs over the fence goes to the hutch pops it back in and his thought is this when he comes home he'll look at Fluffy and just think he's died of natural causes and everything will be okay and a day or two goes by and George thinks he's a genius it all seems to have gone to plan and then after a couple of days he hears a scream from out in the back garden and he goes out and he his neighbor's standing there holding up Fluffy, the, the rabbit. He says, what's happened, poor Fluffy? He looks shocked. The neighbor says, you won't believe this. Fluffy died five days ago. We buried him in the back garden. And would you believe some disgusting human being has come and dug Fluffy up and put him back in his cage? Who would do such a thing? And George says, I have no idea. (laughs) Because when animals die, when people die, they're dead. They're gone. Death has the final word. There's no reincarnation. You don't come back as a majestic horse if you've lived a good life or as a cat if you've lived an awful life. Death is final. It is the one certainty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. That is the history of humanity that every human who has ever lived has also died. And here we are on this Resurrection Sunday, declaring and proclaiming that there was one man who did die, but he overcame death. There was one man who went into the grave, but like everyone else, he didn't stay in the grave, but he rose from the grave and he lives today. And that is why we worship him. That is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Abraham, we love Abraham. And Jews looked to Abraham as the father of Judaism, but Abraham died and he didn't come back. Buddha died and he didn't come back. Muhammad died and he didn't come back. But Jesus Christ died and he rose from the grave. And that is why we worship him. We don't worship a dead God. We worship a risen king who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And it's hard to believe. I know it's hard to believe. And it was hard to believe 2,000 years ago. And so today we're going to take a short journey. Well, it's actually a seven mile walk. You're going to get your your steps in today, folks. 
you're going to get your steps and we're going to take a seven mile walk with two people who didn't believe and couldn't understand or comprehend that Jesus had risen from the dead. We need to understand a little bit about what was going on at that time. I talked about this last week. That in Israel at the time, they were under Roman oppression and occupation and there was this dream, there was this desire, there was this longing for the Messiah, the deliverer that would come from heaven and set them free from the Romans. The prophets had spoken about it and so in the people's minds, they just wanted someone to come in and set them free and get rid of those horrible Romans so that they could live in their own land in the freedom that God intended. And this guy, Jesus, shows up and other people had showed up pretending to be the Messiah and then they died. And this guy, Jesus, shows up and he begins to talk about the kingdom of God. He talks about God being his father. He, he heals people. He sets people free. Demons respond to his voice and flee. Miracles happen. There's multiplication. And crowds start to wonder, is this the one? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one we've been thinking about? And people start to follow him. And they put their hopes in him. And they put their expectations in him. And on Palm Sunday, which we looked at last week, he rides into Jerusalem and there's this frenzy, there's this crescendo of the crowd where they shout, Hosanna! God save us now. In other words, your God save us. Do what you're meant to do. But as the week went on, things took a turn. The whole thing unraveled. And on Thursday night, one of his own team, one of his inner circle, betrayed him with a kiss. The Roman soldiers came and arrested him. He didn't even fight back. There was a mock trial and he was sentenced to death. And on that Friday that we call Good Friday was anything but good. His followers who had put all their hope and all their trust and all their expectation and faith in him watched as this Jesus, this so-called Messiah, hung on a cross and was executed. And as he hung, their dreams were destroyed and hearts were crushed. And those who had put their hope in him, were they were shattered and they scattered. They, they, they ran away because they were scared. This was not how things were meant to be. That was Friday. And when we join the story here in Luke chapter 24, it's Sunday afternoon. It's a few days later. Let me read verses 13 and 14. Now that same day, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. So we have these two former followers of Jesus. They weren't in the inner circle. They weren't the 12 disciples. But they were part of the Jesus movement. We only know the name of one of them, Cleopas. Cleo, we'll call We don't know who the other one was. It might have been Mrs. Cleo. We don't know. But, uh, but, but, but they were part of the Jesus movement. They had put their hope in him. And now it says they're going home. They're going home to this little place called Emmaus. Because everything has fallen apart and it's so they begin the seven-mile journey. How long does that take? Depends who you are, I suppose. Three hours, 
three hours to walk seven miles. And they start this journey. And because there's no point in hanging around Jerusalem. Everything there is finished. That's where their hopes were. But their hopes have been shattered. They may as well go home because when things fall apart, you just want to be at home. You just want to be back in the safety and security of the comfort that you call home. And it says they were talking with each other about all that had happened. Isn't that what we do when something tragic happens, when something awful? At least some of us do. You know, there's two types of people, aren't there? There's, there's those who just bottle everything up. Some of you are married to one of them. No matter what happens, they don't talk about it. And then there's the verbal processors. Some of you are married to verbal processors and you get a lot of detail about everything. Because they talk, they, they come home and they want to talk about everything that happened and work that day. And you just want a quiet life. But you know it's your husband or wifely duty to, mostly husbandly duty to listen to them. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. My, my wife told me to say that. Um, and they, they verbally process. You know, I mean, there's some people who their arm could be hanging off and they'd say, I'm fine. And then there's people who get a sniffle and they tell you a lot about their sniffle. And there's verbal process. Because, but, but, but when something bad happens, we talk about it. We, we're trying to make sense of it. And that's what these two are doing. They're, they're walking along. Jerusalem's behind them. The crucifixion's behind them. And they're just trying to make sense of it. How did it happen? Like, why? Why didn't he fight back? How could he? And what about Judas? Like, how could we? How could we have missed that? Like, if you've ever had anyone betray you, want somebody close to you do something, you go, "How did I not see that? How could Jesus let? How, how, how did this happen?" And they're trying to make sense of it, and they can't because you can't make sense of something that has no sense. And they're despairing and they're discouraged and they're disappointed in Jesus. And maybe, maybe you find yourself in a place of disappointment this morning. Maybe things haven't turned out how you hoped. Maybe you're disappointed with yourself. Maybe you haven't lived up to your own expectations. Maybe you're disappointed with where you are in life. You thought you'd be further on by now. You thought life would look different. Maybe you're disappointed with other people. Because other people do fail us. Maybe you had put your trust in somebody else and they led you down. They betrayed you. Maybe you're disappointed in God because he didn't come through for you. You prayed your best prayer and you believed. And the thing you prayed for didn't happen. Maybe you're just disappointed with life. Because you know what? The reality is we go through disappointments. Life happens. Life happens. Whether you follow Jesus or don't follow Jesus, life happens. And you have disappointments. And when that happens, you want to sometimes just run away and pack it all in. And that's what these two are doing. But look what happens. Verse 15, 16. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. So they're deeply engaged in this discussion about what has happened. And somehow Jesus just comes and starts walking alongside them. This stranger comes and begins a conversation with them. 
but it says they were kept from recognizing who he was. I don't know how they were kept. Spiritually, supernaturally, maybe they just didn't recognize his resurrected body. But they're walking along with this guy and they don't recognize it. In the midst of their disappointment and their heartache and their despair and their sense of loss and hopelessness, Jesus is right there beside them. And isn't that the story of most of our lives? Later, as we look back, we see Jesus with us. But in the moments of divorce, heartache, sickness and suffering, in those times when your whole world has fallen apart, it can be very difficult to recognize that Jesus has come close. But this shows us that in their lowest point, even when they're walking away from where they should be, Jesus draws near but they miss him even though he's right in front of him and sometimes we do that you know uh, there's a story I read about you know, Sherlock Holmes and, and Sherlock Holmes and Mr. Watson were on a camping trip and after a good meal and a bottle of wine they lay down to sleep for the night and some hours later Sherlock Holmes awoke and nudged his faithful friend awake Watson Look up at the sky and tell me what you see. Watson replied, I I see millions of stars, Sherlock. What does that tell you? Watson pondered for a moment. Well, astronomically, it tells me there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I I see that Saturn is in Leo. Orologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I suspect that we're going to have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Holmes? Holmes was silent for a moment, then spoke. Watson, you idiot, someone has stolen our tent. (laughs) Sometimes we miss what's right in front of us. And Jesus is walking alongside Cleo and Mrs. Cleo, whoever it is. And he's right in front of them. And they're talking about him. And he's right there. But they don't recognize him. And I wonder, has there been times in recent days when Jesus has drawn close to you, but you haven't yet recognized You know, it's no accident that Jesus happened to be here. It wasn't like their paths just crossed. Jesus had absolutely no reason whatsoever to be heading to a mess. All the action was in Jerusalem. That tells me that Jesus searched these two out. These two who, we don't even know one of their names. A mess was such an insignificant place. Cleopas doesn't appear anywhere else. And yet Jesus searches them out and Jesus comes looking for each one of us. Look at verse 17. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? He says, lads, what are, you, what, what, what are you talking about? What he's doing is he's giving them permission to express what's going on in their lives because Jesus isn't afraid of us expressing the pain in our hearts. Verse 18. They, they stood still 
their faces downcast. Pause there one second. They, uh, I have read this story so many times and I have never noticed this. So they're walking along. Jesus joins them. He says, so what are you talking about? And they just stop. And it says their faces are downcast. And I was drawn to that little phrase, they stood still. Because when something bad happens, when something tragic happens, when we're disappointed, when somebody betrays us, when somebody lets us down, sometimes we just stand still. We stop. And we should stop. And we should take stock of what's going on. But the problem is some of us stop and we don't get going again. And I really felt this was a word for somebody today. That you have had something happen to you in your life and you have stopped and it has been right for you to stop. (coughs) And your face has been downcast and that is okay. It is right to grieve. But you've never got going again. It's about that God you two song that you've got stuck in a moment and you can't get out of it. And I want you to see here, yes, Jesus stopped with them, but he didn't stay stuck with them. They kept walking. And I believe the word of the Lord to some of you today is, yes, it was right to stop at that place of pain, of death, of grief, of loss, whatever that is, that relationship failure, but don't stop there and get stuck there. You need to keep moving forward with Jesus. Let's keep moving. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? They look at him like he's mad. Do you not know? Like, you're asking us why we're annoyed? Have you, do you not know what's going on? Because in their minds, everybody should know what's going on. There was about 200,000 people in Jerusalem at this time. Do 200,000 people all know what's happened to Jesus? Not a chance. Not a chance. But here's what happens. When something deeply affects you, you can't understand how others aren't affected by it. Do you know what, do you know what I mean? Like if, if you've ever lost somebody who's been really close to you, and I've had people say this to me, you lose somebody who's really close to you and you're in this swirl of just grief and pain and, and you see others getting on with their life. And you're like, how can they? How can they get on with their life? How can they be happy? How, you hear people laugh, you think, how dare they laugh? Because all you can feel is your own loss and your own pain and you can't believe that anybody else isn't feeling that also. And so they're in this place of, how can you not know what's happened to this man in Jerusalem? Because it's absolutely shaken us to the core. And it must have affected you too, because every, everything's fallen apart. Verse 19, what things, he asked. What things? And this is funny. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Do 
have you ever been talking about somebody and they're standing right there? That's awkward, Especially, I mean, if you're saying good things about them, it's great. But if you're talking negatively about them and they overhear you, it's pretty horrendous. Have you ever had somebody talk to you about you because they didn't realize it was you? I just let them talk and I ask questions. This is what's going on here. They're talking to Jesus about Jesus without realizing it's Jesus. With this moment of humor and irony where they're talking about how Jesus disappointed them because he died and hasn't risen from the dead. And he's walking on going, right, lads, tell me a bit more about that. Like, and what happened next? And then they say this. They said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the Messiah. We had hoped that he was the promised savior and deliverer. We had hoped and our hopes have been shattered. And I wonder what you would put in there today. I had hoped. I had hoped. I had hoped that I'd be married by now. I had hoped that we would have a child by this stage. I had hoped that our marriage would be reconciled. I had hoped I'd have a job or a promotion by now. I had hoped this depression would have lifted by now. I had hoped that this sickness would have gone. I had hoped those test results would come back negative. I had hoped that relationship would be reconciled by now. I had hoped to be free of this addiction, this thing that consumes my life and makes me so miserable and yet I can't stop doing it. I had hoped. You know, we need hope. Hope is oxygen to the soul. You can live, I think, for 40 days without food. You can live for three days without water, but you can't live without hope. And these people had put their hope in Jesus and it feels like he has shattered their hope. Because as they looked at the cross, their hope died with him. But the one that they had put their hope in wasn't the real Jesus. He was so much smaller and so much less than Jesus was. Because look at what they say. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, and we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We, he, was, he was a prophet. Yes, he was a prophet. He was a prophet, a priest, and a king. But he was so much more than a prophet. He was the incarnate son of God. He was God with skin on. But they only saw him as a prophet. In other words, they missed who Jesus really was. And they missed the mission. We thought he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, he was the one to redeem Israel. But not only Israel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So they miss Jesus' identity and they miss his mission and they reduce him to a Jesus that fulfills their expectations. But Jesus is also always so much greater than the expectations that we have and the box that we put him in. They thought he was a prophet. They thought he was just a deliverer for Israel, but he was the king of kings, the Lord of lords who had come from heaven to set them free. But they're skeptical. Verse 22. And what is more, they're on a roll now. It's the third day since all this took place. 
In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So they tell Jesus what has happened. They say some of the women, some of the women disciples, some of the followers, they got up early this morning and they went to the tomb because they wanted to anoint the body because that's what you did in those days. And they say they got to the tomb, but the, the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty and the body wasn't there. And there were these angels there. And so they came back to the house and they told the lads and the lads didn't believe it. So, so Peter and John ran to the tomb and, uh, and they got there. And the tomb, yes, the tomb was empty, but the body wasn't there. And so we don't really believe it. I mean, I know the women say it, but you know what women are like, you know, I'm just kind of what's saying here, I'm not saying that, that's, you know, they, 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 exaggerate, they can exaggerate, they, you know, their, their emotions got the better, and so, and so the women say this, but the lads didn't see it, and so we're going home, because we don't believe it. Even though some people have said it, others haven't seen it, and until we see it with our own eyes, we are not going to believe it. And so we're going home. We're skeptical. We don't think it's true. And maybe you're skeptical. You know, maybe you're here, you're listening to me, or you're watching online, and you go, yeah, Jesus lived. I think there's enough historical evidence that a man called Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. And maybe he did some teaching and some exciting things. And I actually even believe he died on the cross, but the resurrection, not a chance. Not a chance. I, I just, I don't believe in the resurrection. I don't believe in the resurrection. That's kind of where they're at. And you know what I love? That Jesus meets them in their skepticism. And Jesus always loves to meet us. Jesus doesn't mind us asking the hard questions. In the 18th century in London, there was a man called Lord Littleton and a man called Gilbert West. And they were getting really annoyed because some of their friends were becoming Christians. And so Gilbert West said to Lord Littleton, I'm going to write a book to disprove Christianity. Lord Littleton said, good, do it. That's the only way. But the way you need to disprove Christianity is this, you need to disprove the resurrection. So Gilbert West goes off, begins to research, gathers information to write his book that the resurrection didn't happen. Christianity's a fraud. Halfway through the book, he encounters the risen Jesus and his life is transformed. He throws his notes away and rewrites a book called, called The Resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was the 18th century. 19th century in America, there was a famous atheist called Robert Ingersoll. He didn't like that lots of people believed in Jesus and his friends were becoming Christians. He had a good friend called Lou Wallace. Ingersoll said to Lou Wallace, why don't you write a book to prove to the world once and for all that Jesus Christ was nothing but a mythical figure, much less the Son of God? So Wallace spent a great deal of time and money investigating every shred of evidence he could find, and his conclusions were far different than Ingersoll had hoped. He got to chapter 4 and had an encounter with the risen Jesus. Became a Christian, and instead of writing a book to disprove the resurrection, he wrote the book that was made into a little-known film called Ben-Hur. 20th century, there was a lawyer and journalist called Frank Morrison. He decided to make a name for himself by disproving Christianity. He gathered evidence methodically, but halfway through writing his book, he had an encounter with the risen Jesus. He threw away his notes and rewrote the book, and the book is called Who Moved the Stone? If you want to meet Jesus Christ, you know what the best way to do it is? Try to disprove the resurrection. 
because Jesus will meet you where you are in your skepticism and cynicism. He will reveal himself as the Savior and he will reveal himself as the Lord. He is not scared of your hard questions or your doubts. And these two are skeptical, but Jesus is going to reveal himself. And over the next two hours, oh, I would love to have been there. He takes them through the most incredible Bible study. He goes into the Old Testament and he talks about how the prophets spoke about his birth and about his life and about his death and about his resurrection. He takes them through the Old Testament and he says, it's all about me. This was not some tragic accident. This was not some mistake. This was not plan B. This was the way it was always meant to happen. It all points to me. But you have picked a few scriptures that suit what you want to think about me. There is so much more in here that points to me. Let me show you the bigger story of how that fits into your little story. And he gives them an invitation, verse 28. We're nearly done. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So we went in to stay with him. I I think this is funny. So they reach a mess. They've walked the seven miles and they get to the lad's house. And Jesus is right. Like, lad, see you later. And... I don't know why I thought about this, but I was thinking about our first date. <laughs> where we went to the Crawfords Burn Inn. And I drove back to Becky's little house on Craig Street in Belfast. And I said, right, I'd better go then. Better drive back to Lurgan. Do you want to come in for a cup of tea? All right then. I mean, you know, if, 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 if you really are persuading me, I will. You know, I had no intention of going. Do you know what I mean? I would have broken entered that house that night if I had to. And Jesus kind of says, right, lads, I'm away on. And they say, wait, wait, wait. Why don't you, why don't you stay here? They don't know who he is yet, but they know there's something. <laughs> they know there's something. There's something starting to stir. There's something going on within them. And they haven't got the full picture yet. Their eyes are not fully open, but they're starting to realize there's something different about this man. But he doesn't force himself on them. He waits to be invited in. And he still does that today. God will not force himself upon any of you. But he says, I stand at the door and knock. And if you open the door, I will come in. He walks with you. And he waits for you to invite him in. Verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took bread. Isn't this funny? He's at the table in their house. He's the guest and he's becoming the host. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. He blessed it and he broke it. He blessed it and he broke it. And the blessing and the breaking so often go together, but that's a different message for a different day. But in our own lives, the blessing and the breaking go together. And as he blesses and as he breaks, their eyes are opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. 
They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Their eyes are open. There's something about the bread. Maybe they were in the upper room. We assume it was only the disciples at the Last Supper. There was probably other people sitting around watching the meal. There's something as Jesus breaks the bread, their eyes are opened and they go, it's, it's him. It's him. And then they go, we're not our hearts burning within us. Like, like as he opened the word of God to us, was there not something like our dead, cold, hard hearts that had been broken by the cross? Did they not start to pulsate with life? And they recognize their eyes are open to who Jesus is. He's been with them all along, but it's only now that they recognize who he is at the end of the road to a mess. You know, there's two types of conversions to Christ. There's what I call a Damascus road. Remember Paul on the Damascus road? He's wanting to kill Christians and he has this encounter with Jesus and he falls. And he, he's radically converted. Okay, and, and for some of us, that's our story. We can look back at a date, a mission, a gospel tent, a, a Billy Graham crusade, whatever. And we know that was the moment that our lives changed. That's the Damascus road. But some of us are on the Emmaus road. And Jesus has been journeying with us for some time. And we don't have a big dramatic moment and we don't have tears and we don't have that big put up your hand and go to the front moment. But we just as we have been journeying over the last month, year, five years, we've just come to believe. We've just had this moment where our eyes have been opened. And we're waiting on a dramatic moment because that's what other people have had. But actually the moment for you is not in a Damascus road, it's in a mess road moment. And you have just gone, I see it now. I see it now. The words that we sang this morning, I believe them. I've never fully put my trust in Christ, but I actually believe every single word. And this morning in about eight minutes, we're going to give you the opportunity to respond to that. If you have been journeying with Jesus but you've never put your trust in him. If he's been walking alongside you, we want you to leave here today having put your faith in him. Let's finish. Verses 33 and 34. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and said, it is true. The Lord has risen. They walk seven miles and then they turn around and they walk right back to Jerusalem. When they encounter Jesus, the risen, living Jesus, they have a turnaround moment. They were going one direction in their life and now they're going a different direction in their life. They were walking away and now they're walking towards. And our God is the God of turnaround. Our God is the God of turnaround. You know, those of you who love football and your team is down 2-0 and they score three goals in the last 10 minutes, don't you love that turnaround? Those of you who own a business, when things look like they're going downhill and the company's about to close and then somebody steps in and gives you a big order or somebody comes in and buys it over and there's this turnaround. When somebody is in hospital in Birmingham and it looks like their situation is hopeless and their body is given up and their organs are crashing and then there's a turnaround. 
Isn't it incredible? We love these turnaround moments. And I want to say to you today, because Jesus Christ is alive, you can have a turnaround. Doesn't mean your life will be perfect. Doesn't mean it will be pain-free. But it does mean it will have purpose. And Jesus is inviting all of us today into a turnaround moment.